Hello, stranger. Welcome to the Lineup Podcast. If you're a fan of mystery, you've come to the right place. With each episode, we unearth a strange case from around the world. Today's episode, we join Elizabeth Hand in the snow-covered fields of upstate New York, where one childhood ritual at twilight awakens a strange presence in the woods. So this is a story of something that happened to me and uh, my two best friends on March 12, 1971. It was um, a few weeks before my 14th birthday. My two friends, Janine and a girl I'll call Ellen, were uh, already 14. We were in, in eighth grade at the time and we went to a Catholic school and for whatever reason, I don't recall, we did not have school on that Friday. So we were out of school, and our usual cohort of friends who we hung out with, who were some of them from the public school, um, they were all, none of them were around. And we grew up in a fairly rural area, kind of heavily wooded, but with a lot of, you know, sort of housing, not exactly housing developments, but little housing enclaves in it. This is about 60 miles north of New York City. And it was late winter, um, there was snow on the ground, not um, a whole lot of snow, but enough that there was sort of a skin of snow. And nothing had really started to bud out yet on the trees or leaves or anything. So it was very, very bleak, and it was a gray day, and the three of us had gone off to play in the woods. And we were sort of in that in-between stage where we'd known each other since fourth grade, and Janine and I were kind of the ringleaders. Um, Janine was very smart, very brainy, very science-brained. She recently retired as a senior aircraft engineer for a major aircraft um, manufacturer. Ellen was a little more, you know, passive, kind of went along with what we did, and I was, you know, very imaginative. Ever since we had been in... um, fourth grade, we would often, when left to our our own devices, we would make up games in the woods. And because Janine and I loved The Lord of the Rings and Narnia and Alan Garner's Elador and sort of um, dark fantasy novels like that, a lot of our games sort of revolved around going into another world. But now we were teenagers and it was kind of not cool to do that anymore. But this was a day that sort of felt like it was a little bit outside of time. So we were indulging in one of our games. And I don't really remember what the game was. I remember we went over to Janine's house early in the day. Janine was the youngest of four children, so there were no younger siblings around if there were at my house or at Ellen's house. And her mother didn't really pay much attention to anything that we did, so we kind of were able to run free. And we had taken off early in the morning, and we were off 
just wandering around in the woods. I would say maybe by nine or 10 o'clock. And time passed very quickly. And I do not remember exactly what kind of a game it was that we played, but we would sort of make up stories as we went along. We made up stories sort of pretending we were in a place like Middle Earth or Narnia that we had sort of slipped between the worlds. And one of the odd things is that usually I can remember the stories that we made up um, because I would go home and write them down. But this particular time, I do not remember that. All I remember is that Somehow, a large number of hours passed, say between 10 o'clock and maybe 3 or 4 in the afternoon. And we felt that we had had this remarkable experience. We sort of blinked our eyes and looked around, and we felt that whatever we had done during that time, we had been somewhere else. And I don't remember where we had been, and neither does Janine. And I've fallen out of Ellen over the years. But we reached the end of our day, and we knew we had to get back fairly soon to Janine's house. We were having a sleepover there, and we knew we'd have to get back for dinner. And we looked at each other as we were getting ready to head out of the woods and start back to her house. And one of us, probably me, said, we're not going to leave this place without you know, having something special happen. So let's all look and see what we have in our pockets. We reach in our pockets and Janine had a pencil that had the word Ravenwood printed on it. And uh, Ellen did not have anything. And I had a locket that opened on a gold chain. It was not real gold, but it was gold colored. So I gave the locket to Mary and I kept the chain. And as we walked out of the woods and headed towards Janine's house, I said, Let's make up a ritual, because these are the sacred things that we're taking from this place. And we're going to make up a ritual over them. So we went into Janine's house, and she had a piano. And she sat down, and she kind of played a creepy melody on the piano. And we made up words to the melody, and then we went out onto the deck of her house. And now it's maybe 4 or 4.30. Her mother's putting around making dinner, not paying any attention to us. And the sun is starting to go down, and um, her house was sort of a Frank Lloyd Wright-styled house. It was not an actual Wright house, but it had that sort of a feel to it. So very modern, nothing old or creepy about it at all. And it had a big outdoor deck that looked out over sort of a field, a sloping lawn field that went down quite a distance, but I don't know, maybe a hundred feet or so to where the woods began, and there was a very clear demarcation between the woods and the field. And off to the side, there was the road. The driveway went out to the road, very short distance. And the road sort of ran parallel to the field, but um, perpendicular to the woods. And we looked out across that field, and we made up this ritual. And it had words, which I don't remember. And Janine, being the smart, science-minded girl that she was, she knew that the full moon was that night, and she knew what time the moon was going to rise, which was, I don't know, 6.30 or 7. So we had our little um, ritual, and we took our things, and we stood on the deck, and Janine said, well, what we have to do is we have to toss our, our sacred things from the deck, and then we have to come back out, and we have to retrieve them before the moon rises, or something will happen. 
and we all just had a feeling that she was right, that we had to do that or else something bad would happen. So we stood there, and as the sun went down, we said our little ritual, our little chant with the eerie music that Janine had composed, and then we tossed our three things from the deck onto the field below. There was the pencil, there was the locket, there was the chain, and we didn't throw them very far. We were not, none of us were athletes, so we could not have flung these things very far, and the objects were very light, so they wouldn't have gone very far. So they just kind of dropped down beneath us, and we looked down to see where they were, because we thought, okay, we see them, we'll be able to retrieve them later after dinner. And we went back into the house. So maybe an hour passed. We had dinner, we sat down. And by now it is full dark and Janine's mother is doing the dishes and then off, you know, watching whatever was on TV on Friday night, you know, gun smoke. Janine says, okay, it's time now, we have to go retrieve our things. So. We went outside. We had to kind of sneak out back because Janine's mother didn't want us to stop playing after dark. And we went out to the back and we walked right under the deck and looked where we had dropped our things, and they weren't there. So we thought that was a little odd, but we thought, well, maybe the things had gone further than we thought. So we walked back and forth very carefully looking for them, and the snow was not soft snow. It had frozen, so there was a, a skin on it. So when the, we had dropped the things, they had fallen, and we could see where they lay. And we started looking for them, and we could not find them. And we're wandering a little further and further away from the house, and we still couldn't find them. And meanwhile, off to the right, kind of above the road, the sky started to get brighter. And it was a very clear, a clear night. There was, there was no real cloud cover or anything. So you could see where the, the moon was coming up. The, the sky was noticeably brighter. And we're still looking, and we're starting to get a little creeped out because we can't find our things. And then all of a sudden, Ellen says, look. And she points down to the woods. And there in the woods, kind of distant, I don't know how far away they were, there were these three globe-shaped glowing lights. They were white. And they were sort of bobbing up and down. And what they looked like, and what I thought they were at first, was they looked like we were kind of looking through the trees, which didn't have leaves on them, at an angle out to the road. And that there was, I thought, well, maybe there's three people walking up the road carrying flashlights and are, you know, heading towards us. Because that's kind of what it looked like. They were sort of, the lights were sort of moving up and down the way they would if somebody was walking. And so we, I ran out and to look down the road, but there were no people. There was no one there, and that this was not a very um, inhabited area. So now we're starting to get really creeped out, and we're looking for our things, and we can't find them. And meanwhile, the whole time we're looking, these three bobbing lights are getting closer and closer to the edge of the wood, and we can see now more clearly that they're not on the road. And they're about 10 feet up in the air. And they're just sort of moving up and down in this kind of, I, I don't know how to describe it, this sort of mindless yet somehow insistent fashion. They were absolutely terrifying because the three of us didn't talk about it at all, but we knew whatever this was, it was coming for us. 
And we weren't hysterical. We weren't screaming and yelling. We weren't running back into the house. We just were watching the lights come closer. And all of a sudden, we realized that if we didn't find our thing, we didn't know what we had done. Something horrible was going to happen. And meanwhile, we're looking over, and we can see that you could start to see the moon coming up above the ridge of the horizon. So we redoubled our efforts, and we're at this point running around frantically back and forth across the field looking for our things. And um, Janine found hers first, the pencil, and she snatched it up and she yelled, I found it, I found it, much further away than we could have, when she had thrown it. And Ellen and I are looking frantically, and I, for myself, am getting increasingly frightened, and Ellen is starting to cry because she's so scared. And then she screams that she had found her locket. And I don't know how we knew. I don't know whether we were being loyal to each other, but we just kind of knew that until we had found all three things together, that we would not be able to run back inside. So now it was me, and I'm the last one, and I can't find my freaking chain. And I was just terrified. And... The only element of humor in all of this is that at this point, Janine begins to sort of warble to dream the impossible dream, which I think was supposed to give us hope, which didn't really help much. And then all of a sudden, I saw glinting on the snow as the moon was coming up, the shape of the chain. And at this point, these three ominously, slowly bobbing things have just about reached the edge of the woods and the edge of the field where we were. And so I snatched up the chain and the three of us turned and we hightailed and we ran back into the house as fast as we could, closed the door, locked the door, went upstairs. Janine's mother paying us no mind. She's off watching TV or something. And the three of us look out the deck, the window on the deck uh, from the house and the lights are still there. And... The really unsettling thing, Janine had a dog, um, a big German shepherd named Duchess. And the dog saw the things, too, because the dog came over, and she, she didn't bark, but she stood with us, and she stared out, and she started, you know, staring out the window, and her hackles rose, and her ears went back, and she sort of whined and walked back and forth. So whatever it was, she was able to see them. And for the next, I don't know, little while, I don't know how long, 10 or 15 minutes, they were still there. And they just kept moving back and forth at the edge of the field. And then gradually they receded and they were gone. And I have no idea to this day what they were. Um, I've asked Janine about it. As I said, she's a very brainy, science-minded person. And she has said that she thinks that for that time that we don't really remember when we were playing in the woods that afternoon, that we somehow stepped into some sort of a parallel, you know, place, universe, something, some strange place. Uh, what I read and learned about 10 years ago was that her, um, that that house and that yard and those woods actually are part of the Mianus River Gorge, which is a large nature preserve in, in that part of New York State. And that the Mianus River Gorge is actually one of the only um, stands of old-growth forest that are left in uh, the Northeast. So maybe that has 
something to do with it. All, all I know, my, my own theory is that I think that it was a thin place. You know, I think that somehow we wandered into a thin place. I don't know whether our little ritual summoned something or invoked something or whether our two um, planes coincided for that amount of time. But all I know is that it, it happened. It did happen. Um, we were not hysterical. We were not um, on drugs. There was no marsh gas because there was no, um, no swamp there. And I've seen marsh gas, and this did not resemble it at all. So I cannot explain what happened. All I can say is that it did happen. Elizabeth Han, thank you for joining us and telling us that excellent story today. Oh, you're very welcome. I certainly want to talk more about the uh, story you told us, but first I wanted to start with uh, your experience as a writer, and in particular your history with music. Uh, you have had quite a lot of time, you've logged a lot of hours with uh, the punk and hardcore scene in New York City in the 1970s and 80s, is that correct? Yeah, it's actually New York City and, and Washington D.C. Right, where I live. I lived. In, I lived in D.C. from 1975 to 1988, but I grew up just outside of New York City, so I was kind of in that orbit around um, CBGBs. But then I was also in D.C., which ended up having this really explosive hardcore scene that grew out of the sort of first wave of punk in the mid 70s. And were you doing uh, journalism writing as well? Were you doing music reviews or doing show reviews or photography during that period? No, okay. I wished I, I, I should have been writing. I wanted to write reviews. I wanted to be Lester Bang. <laughs> if I'd had a better idea of what I was doing, if I had been more, um, I don't know, if I'd been more aggressive about it, if I'd been more disciplined, which I was not. I was spending a lot of time seeing the bands and going out all, all the time. Um, and I was writing, but I was not really diligent about writing reviews. I think I knew even then, although I've actually had a second career as a, a book reviewer and critic, but I, I just kind of felt that maybe music criticism was not going to be for me. Oh, yeah. Among other things, I don't really know. I play no musical instrument. I have no musical ability. I can't sing. I, you know. Right. Sure. I'm a, I'm a really good. I'm a good fan. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, and a good fan of a great genre that doesn't place as much emphasis on those things as well. Punk rock and hardcore music is yeah, a bit right. of the ethos. <laughs> Had your, was your fascination with paranormal, with, uh, I don't even know if you want to call it ghost stories so much as just uh, the strange and wondrous side of life, had that always been with you? Is that something that has always been in your imaginative mind? Oh, definitely. Okay. Always, always. Yeah, since from a very early age. Huh. Um, and I love ghost stories. I always loved ghost stories. As a kid, I was the girl who told ghost stories at, you know, the parties and the sleepovers and the campfire. When I was 
uh, only about eight years old, seven or eight years old, and I went to a day camp in Yonkers where we lived at the time. I hated day camp, and I would, you know, go with a group of kind of other sort of outsidery girls, and we would run into the woods and escape from the counselors, and I would entertain everyone for, you know, an hour by telling ghost stories. And the uh, experience you shared with us today, uh, as I mentioned, obviously had a tremendous impact on you, I'm sure, just... Uh, both your imagination and your sense of storytelling, but also just uh, the trajectory of your life. Because as you mentioned, you and Janine often speak on the anniversary of this event, right? Yeah, yeah. We don't talk every year. She lives on the West Coast. I live here on the East Coast. But yeah, we've kept in touch. And it's it's kind of a way of checking in, too, at at least for me to say, like, that really happened, huh, right? Right. Like we did, we didn't make that up. We huh. weren't like dreaming it. And she's like, "Oh no, it really, yeah, it happened." <laughs> and she and she's much more level-headed right. and um, pragmatic than I am. You know, she's she's a scientist. Right. She's an engineer, so she, she has that engineer brain. So I feel like, okay, if she says it's true, then I I'm I don't doubt myself. It it did happen. But even her interpretation of the story uh, has a paranormal bent to it. She sees it as somehow entering into another dimension or some sort of extrasensory experience that in a lot of ways defies the scientific world. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea what it was. I, I really don't. I mean, when we were talking about it one time and and she was reminding me, hey, you know, we were there for like a really long time and mm. it went so quickly. And I said, yeah, right, I, I do, I remember that. And she said, that all, even at the time, that struck her um, as something that was really strange about it. So it was good to have somebody else to kind of confer with on, on these details and, and um, confirm that we were remembering the same things. Mm-hmm. Now, your most recent work is Wilding Hall, and it's about an acid folk band that records their album in a haunted mansion. And I feel that is uh, just the perfect place for your storytelling voice. Was it something that you set out to combine these dual interests that we're touching on now, this interest in music, this love of music, and also this fascination with the paranormal or the otherworldly? Oh, definitely. Hmm. I love love music, obviously, and the the band, you know, it's this acid folk band in Wilding Hall. and I love the tradition of the antiquarian English ghost story, which very often involves a creepy haunted manor house. Mm. But I, I really wanted to update it and have it, um, you know, set in the latter part of the 20th century and have the people who are having this experience be, you know, young, like late teenage, early 20s. Um, and they don't really even, not to give anything away, but they don't even really realize what has happened until after the fact. Um, and there's not really any, there's a lot of clues there. There's a lot of hints as to what went on. Mm. And the story is told in these different voices. It's framed as a, a documentary, sort of an oral history where somebody is interviewing the various members of the band about the making of this one breakout album, which is titled Wilding Hall, which is also the name of the place where they're staying, where this supernatural event occurs. And during the course of the interviews, each one of the band members and some of their friends, a journalist and their manager and a girlfriend, 
they're all giving their account of what happened. And it's this sort of Rashomon um, effect of hearing different points of view. And it's up to the reader to try to decide and determine what really went on. But, but I deliberately did not want to give an explanation for it because I feel, based on my own experience, that things like this do happen and we are not handed uh, a guidebook. You know, we are not given an app that tells us what to expect or what we just saw or went through. Um, I have no idea, you know, what happened to me and Janine and Ellen. And in, in Wilding Hall, I sort of wanted to leave it up to the reader to feel as though she or he had had that experience herself and try to determine what had happened after the fact. Not sure what happened, but that it simply happened, as your story ended with. Yeah, it doesn't. There's not an explanation given. Um, I mean, there's, there are a number of possible explanations that are, hmm. are there. And I have my own explanation that I know. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> 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 Elizabeth Hand, uh, thank you very much for telling your story and joining us today. It was a pleasure. Uh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Elizabeth Hand is the award-winning author of numerous dark tales, including Waking the Moon, Last Summer at Mars Hill, Glimmering, and the Winterlong series, set in post-apocalyptic Washington, D.C. Her most recent work, Wilding Hall, which chronicles the doomed recording session of an acid folk band at an English mansion in the countryside, is available now. The Lineup Podcast is written and produced by the Lineup staff, myself, Matthew Thompson. Special thanks to Elizabeth Hand and our partners in crime at Open Road Media. Our audio producer is Chai Dingari, Background music is by Audio Blocks, and our theme music is provided by Absofacto. Listen in at absofacto.com. For more information on the stories we present, visit our website, thelineup.com. That's the-line-up.com, where murder and mayhem is delivered daily. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well, which brings you five mysteries to your inbox every week. This is Matthew, and that does it for me. Until next time, keep it weird. <laughs>